From our studio in San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, this is Salt and Spine. We spoke to certain people and tried to understand what makes their life easy in the kitchen. And often it's not so much about the recipe, it's about a state of mind. You're listening to Salt and Spine, stories behind cookbooks. I'm Brian Hogan-Stewart. Now, you just heard from renowned cookbook author Yotam Otalangi. Yotam is an Israeli-born British chef who has been credited with, among other successes, making the world love vegetables. Or so says Bon Appetit magazine, which also described watching Yotam and his collaborator, Sammy Tamini, cook as being like watching the Rolling Stones in concert. Now, if you've browsed a cookbook store in the past few years, chances are you've seen or picked up or bought one of Yotam's cookbooks. From his first self-titled book to the uber-popular and vegetable-forward duo Plenty and Plenty More, there's also Jerusalem, a cookbook, which brings us to Yotam and Sami's home city, or Nopi, featuring recipes from his London restaurant, and Sweet, which is loaded with desserts and baked goods built on his signature flavors. Which brings us to his latest and seventh cookbook, Otolenghi Simple. Now, if you know Otolenghi's work, simple might not be your first descriptor. We'll talk with him about that. But each of these recipes is simple in at least one way and usually more, whether that's under 30 minutes, using just a single pot, or using ingredients just from your pantry. This is the Otolenghi for your weeknights. In today's episode, we'll talk with Yotam about his approach to cookbooks, how his recipes and style have shaped modern home cooking, and why he never uses a food stylist. Plus, we have a special featured excerpt from the podcast Yotam recorded to coincide with his latest cookbook. Don't miss that as we hear Yotam and Salt and Spine friend Nigella Lawson cooking together. And as always, we're stopping by Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack about Yotam Otolenghi's unquestionable influence. All of that this week on the Otolenghi Simple edition of Salt and Spine. Let's head now to our studio at San Francisco's The Civic Kitchen, where we sat down with Yotam Otolenghi to talk cookbooks. Hi, Yotam. Thank you so much for joining us on Salt and Spine. Thank you. Good to be here. We're glad to have you. So we're here to talk about your latest cookbook, which is your seventh, Otolenghi Simple. I know. I can't believe it's seven books already. <laughs> yes, exciting. <laughs> seven books. Um, and this one is, I think, based on its title, perhaps the simplest, you could say, of all of your books. Yes, that's yeah. pretty much it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now let's go back a little bit before we talk about this book specifically okay. to how you sort of came to food and how you came to the cookbook industry, uh, how you came to to be working as a chef. You originally, sort of in your post-college time, were studying philosophy, comparative literature, mm-hmm. sort of going down this path. And then something clicked for you. I think you've said you started to cook through Julia Child's cookbooks. You started to really immerse yourself yeah. in food. When did that happen for you? Uh, and what was that sort of evolution like? It started off... So I, I uh, went to university and I studied in the 1990s and I studied uh, comparative literature and philosophy and I had a good time, but I wasn't satisfied. <laughs> I felt okay. that there was a lot of work done and very little coming back. And, and I've only recently found out that what I was looking for was immediate gratification that I, that I didn't get in that world of, you know, university and studying and and all the rest. Sure. And I sat long hours in front of a computer screen and I just thought like, I want to try something else. And I always, I never thought of it as a career option, but I always loved cooking and I've 
been since I became a student. I always I, I just used to cook for friends uh, who came over, and it was the act of feeding and the act of shopping for ingredients. Both do those things I, I really enjoyed doing as well as the cooking so i took a year off i went to the cordon bleu cookery school in london and i said oh well, let me see how that works out if that works out for me and uh, and it did i mean yeah. it wasn't so easy all the time and working in a restaurant was very challenging at different stages but i always felt that the yeah going back to immediate gratification you know that that this the the happy faces that you see on people's you know on on people after they've eaten right. food that they loved is is priceless you know right. it just doesn't compare to a to a university paper that hardly anyone reads and hardly anyone smiles over. You know, it's just, it's just not the same thing. Sure. Yeah. And you grew up in a pretty food focused family, right? Yeah. Yeah. My parents are both really good cooks mm-hmm. and also adventurous cooks. Okay. Um, I grew up in Israel, but they're from European descent. My, my dad is Italian. My mom's German. Uh, so we had kind of a great, a great European food, you know, especially the, on the Italian side. My dad would always cook with a lot of fresh, good fresh ingredients and lots of olive oil. And uh, we had polentas and pastas and, you know, everybody knows them, but they're just so good. <laughs> and uh, But I also, I also had a lot of really great Middle Eastern food, not so much at home, but because I grew up in Jerusalem, uh, obviously with the Palestinian community and uh, various Jewish communities. There was always a lot of that kind of Middle Eastern sensibilities, you know, the lots of garlic and lemon and chickpeas and tahini and tons of herbs and, and lots. So that, that kind of intensity of Middle Eastern cooking that people right. would probably know by now, I grew up with that as well. So I kind of have a little, I had a little bit of everything, which was really quite, quite a remarkable way to start your life as a eater and a cooker. And did that influence you then and how you approach cooking and recipes today? I think you have a reputation for sort of not following particular cuisines or regionality and sort of really just focusing on ingredients and how they connect. Did that upbringing and sort of having those worlds of flavors merging together in your, in your childhood impact how you approach recipes today? Definitely. Um, I, I don't think I am, I don't feel bound to one culinary tradition and it's, you know, I've been operating as, you know, as a cook, as a chef for 20 years or so. And I, even early on, before it became more popular to mix and match, you know, I always felt quite comfortable and still quite feel quite comfortable mixing and shaking things up a little bit. I don't do it willy nilly and I don't do it just for the sake of it, but I do it when I think it's, it's fine. It's the right thing to do or, or so, you know, we're here in the, in the mission and I just went and had a couple of tacos, oh, you great. know, it's like, uh, and which I don't normally eat because we don't have so much in, in London. Sure. And immediately it just resonates in so many ways with Middle Eastern food, you know, the heat, the flatbread, the mm. cooking meat and then chopping it up. I mean, which is the equivalent of a shawarma. And right. so, so I just feel that setting up like borderlines between cuisines is quite artificial. And there's a lot of echoes of foods that kind of reverberate between cuisines and cultures. So making those mixes is actually makes sense in many cases, not always, but in many cases it does. Yeah. 
Now, your latest book is Simple, Otolenghi Simple. You acknowledge in the beginning of the book that it might be a con- it might feel like a contradiction to some yeah, people I who pick that. up this book, right? Um, and, and you even note that some per- one person's definition of simple might be different than your definition of simple, or some other people who've worked on the book's definition of simple. What does simple mean to you? Well, that's exactly it. So you kind of summed it up in, in, in a few words in the sense that what my definition is simple in this particular case doesn't matter so much because I mean, what is simple for me is not necessarily simple for another reader mm, sure. uh, or another cook. So with this particular book, I would myself and my co-authors, Tara and Esme, try to do is really try to figure out what does simple cooking mean for different people. So before we just went and published a whole book full of easy recipes, we tried to, uh, we spoke to certain people and tried to understand what makes their life easy in the kitchen. And often it's not so much about the recipe, it's about a state of mind. And, and then we just, so we, we, we came up with a, with a lit, with, with the, with the recipes in the book, but we also uh, decided to curate the book in such a way that there would be a whole range of recipes with for different people and their perception of easy or simple. Right. And I'll explain that a little bit. So some people would be um, inclined to say that for them, simple cooking is quick cooking. Sure. So, oh, I'll, you know, I want to finish a dish in half an hour. Right. Uh, others would say, oh, for me, it's not so much about how long it takes me. It's just about not being stressed when people come over for dinner. So I want to prepare everything in advance. I'm, I'm willing to spend an hour or two in the kitchen, but I want to, get it all done the day before or in the morning and be ready for for the evening. Right. So there's a two different two examples of different ways of perceiving simple. So we took the the word simple and we use it the letters as an, as an acronym for what different ways of cooking simply. Yeah. Uh, so recipes that would have S above them will be short on time. I is for ingredients 10 or less and yeah. would be make ahead. P is pantry ingredient recipes that you cook from what you happen to have in the, in your house mostly rice pasta frozen peas etc. Sure. L is stands for lazy recipes that are actually you just put in the oven or on your stovetop and you forget about it and then they cook yourself. And E stands for easier than you think and those are recipes that sound complicated to some people like ice cream or bread or you know but actually if you look at the recipe they're they're actually not as as complicated as you might think. Yeah. So every recipe in the book is easy or simple in one or more of these ways that I've just described. So when so if you want to make a meal and you're happy to spend a couple of hours you look for all the M recipes that make ahead. Right. And you put them together and you go oh actually I can cook uh, the eggplants roast them in the morning or the night before and dress them at that very last minute i can make my um my uh fish stew that i'm going to make i make all the sauce and then i put the fish in 10 minutes before it's ready to serve and then i drizzle it with tahini and there's my chili fish with tahini on top. Right. So all those m m recipes are very useful for that way of cooking and in the same way, all the other ways. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have that little acronym. And most of them have it. All of them have at least one. Some of them have several. I think there's maybe one or two that have all, all six or all six. Yeah, six, all yeah. Six. Like how many? Yes, <laughs> all, yes, all six. six. You mentioned P, which is pantry. And you also have a, a section in here called the Otolangi pantry. Yeah. Your pantry is probably different than many people's pantries at home. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But I think you also have been credited for changing a lot of people's pantries and the way a lot of people cook 
and particularly the ingredients they're seeking, not only in the UK, but across the globe. So, you know, you've really championed ingredients like pomegranate molasses, like barberries, like preserved lemons. Mm -hmm. And you're not the only author or the only chef to do that. But I think you get a lot of credit there. How have you sort of perceived those shifts across the globe and how people are cooking and how people are incorporating some of those ingredients that you think of as your pantry into their own kitchens? First of all, I always like to say to people that think of particular ingredients as, as feeling particularly exotic or remote or complicated to get your hands on that mm. it takes, it doesn't take a long time for a, an ingredient to travel from the periphery to the center. You know, only a few decades ago, mozzarella was in that position or, yeah. or olives or even olive oil. You know, they were exotic and expensive and something you'd had to get out of your way to come across. Right. So. These are very shifty positionings and I'm lucky enough to have helped certain ingredients migrate from the, to the center. Uh, you know, things like za'atar and sumac and preserved lemon and tahini and a few of those that you've mentioned are, are great ingredients and they only needed someone to champion them in order to, to move into people's kitchens, you know, and get them to start cooking with. So I see it as something that has always been happening and I'm just championing one set of ingredients of it. Obviously, I'm very happy to see and it becomes easier and easier to do that these days because the conversations around food, like we're having now on a podcast, are just happening on so many levels and in so many formats. And, and as a result, they move and shift very, very quickly. So, you know, if it took before, it took years and years for an ingredient to make an impact. Now you t- I talk about it, the next chef in another restaurant talks about it, someone else, and then all of a sudden some something that everybody knows. Everybody knows, you know, um Korean chili paste now. Right. And it's some how it's only a couple of years that we've been talking about Korean chili paste, but all of a sudden it's something that we all have in our cabinet and are, you know, put into our rice or make kimchi or whatever it is that we're doing. So it's very exciting how quickly these things happen. I'm a small player in that world, but it feels very good to see all those ingredients appear on people's shelves. And the, and the one thing I love is when I meet someone, they say, oh, I've introduced a recipe based on your ingredients to my cooking and it's really changed the way I cook or something like that. And I, I, I find that really gratifying. We'll be right back with the second part of our conversation with Yotam Odalangi. If you're a regular listener, you know that Salt and Spine is recorded at the Civic Kitchen, the recreational cooking school in San Francisco's Mission District. The Civic Kitchen offers hands-on classes and events for home cooks. We love the Civic Kitchen's open, airy, and welcoming space. It's a wonderful place for learning different techniques, cuisines, and styles from their roster of expert teachers. And personally, of course, I love the wonderfully curated cookbook wall, which is the backdrop of all Salt and Spine interviews. Now, don't miss upcoming classes like Thanksgiving 101 and Turkey the Japanese Way. You can find a list of all the Civic Kitchen's classes and sign up at civickitchensf.com. And now we have a featured excerpt from Simple Pleasures, a new podcast hosted by Yotam Odalangi, in which Yotam cooks from Odalangi Simple alongside guests in his home, while talking about topics like food, travel, and life's simple pleasures. Right now you'll hear Yotam and Nigella Lawson, who joined us on Salt and Spine earlier this year, as they prepare a delicious meal of slow-cooked chicken with a crisp corn crust, cucumber and lamb lettuce salad, and Nutella, sesame, and hazelnut rolls. Let's listen. When I lived in Italy, I was very poor and I could, all I could afford 
was a kilo, I lived there with a school friend of mine, a kilo of tomatoes and we had olive oil so and occasionally no- a bottle of wine and we used to sit because I was a chambermaid, you know, in, in yeah. France. So I used to sit in this teeny little balcony outside the room with sliced tomatoes with mustard and looking at everyone going about the place. Was so nice. I feel that I'm just starting to find out the notion of simplicity of simple eating and living and you've just, you've mastered it when you were, <laughs> how, when, how old were you when you 19. were in Italy? 19. But you never went really complicated with your food ever. But I don't, I never have because I don't, I don't have any training. So but you, it, you say that, but I don't think it's about training, it it's about bit, aspiration. No, it is because I think it's, it's about the fact that if you've worked, even for a short time in a professional kitchen, you have to get an awful lot done and you know you can do it. You may not enjoy it, but you can do it. Whereas it actually brings out a lot of lack of confidence in me if something is quite complicated and I worry I won't be able to do it. And that so takes over and um, makes everything daunting that automatically I don't believe I could do it if it was complicated. And I feel in a way, although I'm slightly ashamed to admit it because if you do what I do, you're not meant to be frightened of anything, but it helps me when I write recipes because I really understand it when people feel it's too much and they feel daunted before they start. So in a way... It means a lot to me to be able to convey how simple a particular mm-hmm. recipe is. And I know that people can do those easily. You've written somewhere that cooking something many times gives you the confidence to just mm. walk into the kitchen, cook mm. that. And there's mm. no sense of, oh, will I get it right mm. or will I get it wrong? It's just yes. something that I do yes. and I know. And I think this actually, a lot of professional chefs won't admit to it. But I think this is also true about professional chefs. This is why... I never order the dish of the day in a restaurant because I know that this, they've probably only tried it the first time yes, today. Yes. And they haven't, and they haven't, yes. uh, in, and I know that even in my restaurants, I don't cook in my restaurants, but, mm. but the chefs in our restaurants, I know that something that's on the menu now, it would be so much better next week when yes. they've cooked it a few times and they've done it. So there is this idea that chefs know something, but I think home cooks work in, in a very similar way. It's that, it's that repetition. Yes. Is your prostate waking you up more often than your alarm clock? The fact is, the older you get, the more likely you'll have prostate problems, which can affect your everyday life. That's where Prostate Complete by Real Health comes in. Prostate Complete is the result of 20 years of experience as a leader in men's health. The powerful formula in Prostate Complete supports natural prostate function and reduced urinary urges for a better quality of life. Available at Walmart. Visit ProstateOnePerDay.com for special offers. These statements have not been evaluated by the FDA. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That and makes I, it perfect. But, but, in a way, the great freedom of repetition is that, and it's easier to do in a home than a restaurant because people expect, want consistency in a restaurant. So there are so many ways of cooking that we repeat over and over again. But it means you, you can't stop yourself in a way out of interest changing a vegetable in it or changing a herb or a spice. And so because of that... In a way, that's why I feel to people that actually, yes, do repeat recipes. I have, when people ask me, you know, when I do an event of any sort, you know, about how I'm not confident in the kitchen, how do I get better? I always say, just choose a recipe and just cook it repeatedly. Yeah. So cook it enough times so that you actually don't need to look at the recipe and that without meaning to, you can't help but change some of the ingredients as you go along. Right. And people like you and me sometimes... We want to inspire and mostly we, we want to share our enthusiasms. But I'm also aware that by publishing so many recipes, you can sometimes lead people away from the fact that the easiest way to learn 
is actually through repetition and not, oh, I've done that one recipe, move on to the next. Yes, I find that you really need to immerse yourself in, in a dish or a cuisine or get to understand a set yeah. of spices or a technique yeah. before you move on to the next yes. thing because it really induces anxiety. And I think a lot of the cooking has become very anxiety-ridden because mm. people who have just cooked one-time meal go mm. on to Burmese food, you know, the next day, I and they know. go like... Have, have you really enjoyed what you were doing and have you really it's got something to it into your and cooking? And I also feel that you just, and I think I wrote about this in how to eat, but confidence is very important. But there's a less glamorous word, which is competence. And you do need to get competent before you can get confident. And that yeah. often means, I always say to people, cook for yourself. The idea that someone who doesn't ever cook suddenly says to 10 people, come for supper... It's terrifying. Terrifying. You know, so I think you do need to cook for yourself because I often find that when I cook for myself, you know, I, I'm not worried about things going wrong because it doesn't really matter. It's only my supper that's ruined. And therefore, I relax a bit. I enjoy the process more. I can see what's happening. And I think you taste and you see what you want to be doing. And, that, and in a way, you need to have done that before you cook for other people. Because, look, I don't believe you should ever cook to impress people, but... Any human being wants, wants to please, and so that you are frightened more of something going wrong. And, uh, it, and so I, you need to know it won't, or you need to know how this works. Again, that was a clip from an episode of Yotam Odalengi's Simple Pleasures, as he cooks with Nigella Lawson. You can hear more episodes as Yotam cooks with guests like Great British Bake Off winner Nadia Hussein, Hamilton creator Lynn manuel Miranda, and more. The podcast is produced by Pixiu for Penguin Random House and available wherever you listen to podcasts. And now back to our conversation with Yotam Odalenki. Has your concept of simple changed over time and particularly in recent years? You're a father now, you're a parent now, you and your partner have two kids, right? Yeah, we have two boys. Two, kids, two boys. Yeah. In the United States in particular, when people think of simple or quick night meals, it's often parents needing to get things on the yeah. table. Has being a parent impacted how you sort of think or what do you cook at home? Yeah. It has definitely, um, Carl, my husband and I, we have two boys and we very much like think a little bit differently now about a meal. First of all, the meals are earlier. So you, you don't, you need to get them on the table, you know, to start preparing them at five and right. not at seven, you know, it, it makes a big difference. So that's, that's one thing. But also it, um, I mean, he, Carl does most of the cooking at home. I don't do that much cooking at home. Children just change your, your sensibilities. Altogether, and I find up. Uh, I find that when I come home, I really want to eat my children's food after <laughs> having very complex food all day long. Right. So I, I think this book, although it champions, you know, Ottolenghi flavors, so all the recipes are still, you know, they have kind of that complexity that I like in my food. Contrast of color, contrast of textures, like a surprise flavor in a, in each bite, etc. They're still maybe slightly pared down and maybe are a little bit more ch- child friendly, even if it wasn't, it was only at the back of my mind when I was doing those, those adjustments. So there's definitely more kid friendly recipes <laughs> in this book. Not too many, but there's quite a few, like there's a, a kind of a fancy schnitzel sure. that my kids love eating. There's fish fingers. Yeah. Um, made with fresh coconut or you can use dried coconut that I really love making. Uh, so the, there's more dishes in this book that I can, I'm happy to, 
say that my kids will eat. Although with children, you never know because if they don't feel like it, they just don't eat for no good reason. So, right. Yeah. Let's talk briefly about your cookbook process when you're yeah. putting together a cookbook. One of the things I found most interesting as we were preparing for our conversation today is that you, I think historically, maybe still do not use a food stylist. Yes. Is I, that true? I, yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I put all the food on the plate. I, I, for me, the way the food looks in my books is a kind of, it echoes the way I, myself and my chefs present the, the food in our cafes and delis. There's always a big display of vegetables and a display of sweets and cakes and pastries. And this has always been my agenda or, or not even my agenda. It's been my kind of, my pet love to be able to present food in a particular way. And I carry that on to the book. So when it's time to cook the recipes for the camera, I love to do it myself to do the, the styling, if you want to call it styling, but I, I would just call it, you know, serving. Right. Uh, Cause I try to minimize the styling. So I, nobody else needs to interpret me or think how would I want it to look like, you know, cause I know what I want my food to look like. And I, I really love it looking one particular way and which is the way people have come to see my food through the book not very fancy presentation but very luscious and delicious and like i said contrasted and you really see a lot of details in my dishes and i love that people can see details because for me that's that just makes you want to eat even more right yeah and uh i think i read that you also travel a fair amount so how has that impacted the work that you've done on your cookbooks in particular yeah before i had young children i used to travel much more now i travel less unfortunately i hope to be traveling more again in the future it it impacts it a lot and even if i don't travel physically i travel through books or magazines or television shows or vicariously through my team Okay. Travel, right. <laughs> you know, other yes. people around me travel. So I, I, I constantly get inspired by things that are coming from all over the world. And, and it could be anything from, from a Mexican chili or from a, a spice blend from North Africa or from a way of steaming an ingredient like an eggplant in another culture. So I constantly get myself immersed in ways of cooking of different cultures. So traveling is one way to do it, but actually you can do quite a lot of it, you know, looking at books or, right. or cooking, you know, so you take a cue from something that you've heard about or, or listen to, and then you turn it into a dish. And right. I think we're really lucky to live in a world where it's very easy to be inspired by cuisines, even if you haven't been like, I feel that I really know Persian cooking, although I've never been to Iran. And sure. I'm not lucky to, to even go there considering the political situation there, but I, and I would have loved to, but just being exposed to, like I said, to books, to stories, to cooks that have come from there and cooks from me, it, it gives me a window. Are there specific, uh, authors or cookbooks that have really influenced or inspired you over your career? Yeah, I'm a kind of, I'm, I, I, I do have a big cookbook collection and okay. I, I love cookbooks. Um, we were just talking before we went on, on air or we started recording <laughs> about Nigella Lawson. And right. she's, a, she's a friend of mine. I, I love, I love her writing. I love her recipes and I love what she stands for, which is kind of humanizing cooking as opposed to some chefy attitudes where they're dehumanizing right. food, food in some ways. <laughs> yeah, it's, a, absolutely. it's an achievement rather than something that you'd need to enjoy cooking. So her book, How to Eat has always been very influential. Now it's, yeah. she's just celebrated 20, 20 years. 20 years this year. Yeah. Yeah. To very its publication. Exciting. But I, I always thought that her observations in the book were really 
ahead of her time. Uh, I love, I love the way she, uh, she treats food and talks about it. So that's really been very instrumental. I love books that are kind of like give you more than recipes and sometimes the theory. Like I love the th- flavor thesaurus. Yeah. By Nikki Segnet, which is some people think it's only for chefs, but I think it's for everyone because it's such a, it's offers. So essentially it's, it's a thesaurus of flavors as it says on the cover, but it really goes through ingredients and lists how to match them and how they reverberate in dishes. And she's got a really good uh, way of telling a story and making you laugh and understand ingredients. I really, really enjoy her books. And she's got a new book that is just coming out in the UK called Lateral Cooking. And again, it's really in-depth investigation into how we cook, plus great recipes. She's, she's, I always love reading what she's got to say. Do you remember the first cookbook you ever owned? Oh, yeah, I remember it very well. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, by an Israeli author. Okay. So I grew up in Israel, obviously. Right. Uh, called Ruth Sirkis, and it was a cookbook for children to cook. And it, it was really, it's really sweet. And it was, I, I do remember cooking it from a child. It was sometimes comical, sometimes inspiring. Like there was a, there was an icon and it had like the archetypal mom's face. And it, it, when you reach a certain bit in the recipe that was a bit difficult, it's, it had that icon and it, underneath it says, call mom. Like when it was time to <laughs> chop up something with a sharp right. knife or when it, or cook something on the heat, it says time to call mom. Right. <laughs> it was very funny. And another thing that I, I, I remember really funny in that book was it had a, like we, we have in, um, in Britain and something called a sausage roll, okay. which I think is like a pig in, pigs in blankets. Sure. You know, so it's a pastry yeah. around a sausage. Right. But so we had, um, in that book, there was a kosher equivalent because obviously it had to be a kosher sausage and, mm-hmm. and dairy free pastry. Uh-huh. And it was called Moses in the blanket and no, in the basket. And I was, I, I'll never forget that because I think it's such a funny name for something you want. Like, why would you want to eat it if it's Moses in the basket? <laughs> I mean, it's just hilarious. Yeah. That was one of the recipes in the book. Yeah. I love seeing how early food was there for you that, that. <laughs> cookbook for children and also your first word right was yeah ma. my first word yeah it was ma yeah that's it, it was which for means... food, which meant like these uh kind of croutons that you mm. put in the soup because yeah. my mom used to spread them on my you know in front of me and i used to kind of munch on them and right. yeah i think that she claims that was my first word but <laughs> i think all my all my early memories are food related yeah i can't think of anything before the age of seven that is not related to food it's yeah. quite bizarre Wow. That, that's, that's incredible. So I know we, you have to go, but I want to end with a quick little game that we like to play Please. with all of our guests. Um, so we'll do a little rapid fire round. And now with your latest book, we know what Otolenghi simple means. <laughs> yeah. Um, so maybe I'll give you a, a fill in the blank option for Otolenghi blank and you can tell us what fits that mold. Otolenghi blank. Well, I'll, I'll fill it in for you and then you tell us what matches. Okay. So the first one we'll start with, what is Otolenghi childhood dish? Is definitely a dish from this book, from Simple. It's called okay. Gnocchi alla Romana, okay. which is a, a semolina dumplings, Roman style. And my grandmother used to make it. Uh, it's, it's literally the most ethereal, cheesy, delicious thing you can imagine. And Amazing. it's very easy to make. Amazing. Um, okay, Otolenghi midnight snack. As uh, that would be cheese. cheese, yeah, like parmesan, a really nice, good cheese. Okay, uh, and I have, I like cheese, but it's like a cheese and a glass of wine is what I have after a long day in the kitchen where I just don't want anything complex or too healthy or too righteous. Yeah, 
<laughs> that sounds that sounds perfect. That sounds like a great midnight <laughs> snack. Okay, how about Otolengi pet peeve? Oh, that's a tricky one. Um, I I well, it's what really bothers me is claims about the health properties of food. For me, food is not about is not a is not a medication. You know, it's not something to put in your mouth to cure yourself. Food is is got is a much more long range, long life commitment and to eat well is about joy and it's got nothing to do with health health is a separate thing and i think if you eat things that you love eating and cooking you're probably going to be healthy but vice versa it doesn't work for me okay i like that <laughs> final one uh otolengi airport meal i know you're traveling less uh, today yeah, but what do you see really out? easy for me sushi okay. oh yeah okay. uh, it's it's something that i get either i take from you know from a, somewhere where we near near live live or buy it in the airport but it's very easy to carry around. It's just to offer the right amount of, you know, balance with uh, carbohydrates, with, uh, with protein and nice seasoning. That's what I take with me on the airplane. Okay. Always. Perfect. That's great <laughs> to know. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so fun. We thank appreciate you. It. it was a real pleasure. We're headed now to Omnivore Books in San Francisco to chat with Celia Sack in this week's From the Vault. Hi, Celia. How are you? Hey, Brian. I'm doing well. Great. So we just sat down with Yotam Otolenghi to talk about his latest book, Otolenghi Simple. Wonderful. And I'm hoping you have some info to share with us today. Well, I love Otolenghi. He's such a mensch. Um, Most, (laughs) I have to say, most Israelis rub me the wrong way and I just want to like punch them after five seconds because they're (laughs) so confrontational. But he is just so warm and friendly and open. And, um, you know, he's just coming out with so many cookbooks now because he's got a whole lab, basically, that can test recipes. And I teased him after his book, Plenty More, that his next one should be called Enough Already. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm really thrilled that he's done Simple because it is really simple. Um, A lot of people are afraid of how many ingredients the other books have, which, of course, I don't think makes it difficult. It just means having a lot of ingredients, but you can oftentimes just throw them in. Uh, However, Simple is more like, you know, on the cover, there's this beautiful dish of... um, tomatoes on on this creamy cheese thing that's just fantastic and really, really easy to make. The meatballs, which I haven't made, but um, he actually made for me when I went to his house a couple of summers ago in London okay. and just so easy and delicious and lovable. So yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm just so happy that he finally came out with something that's that is a little bit easier for people to tackle. Sure. A little bit easier, but at the same time his other books have a cult following and particularly in the US have really taken off. Is I there used one? to oh, I yeah. used to tease him that I was gonna rename my store the Autolangi bookshop. <laughs> yeah. because, because that's all I sold. Okay. Now all I sell is salt, fat, acid, heat. So. Sure, of course. Um is there a particular book you sell the most of of his? I would say I would say Jerusalem. Okay. It's between Jerusalem and Plenty. Plenty yeah. is all vegetarian and Jerusalem has some meat, but you know, people are just so curious about this cuisine right now. Uh Israeli food meaning so much more than just Israeli. It's that whole region and uh and he's really brought that to the fore and made I, I think since his first book, we now have all of these spices that weren't available, like Zatar, sure. your corner store almost has to have it because he's 
pushed or his, his work has pushed customers to demand it. So it's made cooking this food easier than it was when it first came out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Celia. Of course. My pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. As always, you can find bonus content from this episode on our website, saltandspine.com. There you'll find two featured recipes from Otolangi Simple, the plum, blackberry, and bay frond bake, and pappardelle with rose harissa. And you can enter our weekly giveaway to win your own copy of Otolangi Simple. Remember, if you like hearing from your favorite cookbook authors on Salt and Spine, and I hope you do, please click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. And if you're inclined, please leave us a review. Our program today was produced by Allison Sullivan and myself. Our original theme song was created by Brunch for Lunch. Thanks, as always, to Jen Nurse, Chris Bonomo, and the Civic Kitchen Cooking School team, and to Celia Sack at Omnivore Books. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more stories behind the cookbooks you love. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey, I'm Kim Holderness. And I'm Ben Holderness. We host the Holderness Family Podcast every Tuesday. You may know us from the silly videos that we make online. Or a book about marriage called Everybody Fights. Or as winners of season 33 of The Amazing Race. Still can't believe that happened. Listen, we do a lot of stuff, but our podcast is our most favorite thing. Yeah, because every week we get to sit down face-to-face, talk to each other about marriage, family, mental health, or just anything that we want to know more about. Sometimes we have expert interviews, sometimes it's just us, but our goal is to bring some joy and laughter into your life every week. Our other goal is that maybe you will learn something as well. Right. So search the Holderness Family Podcast and check out our most recent episodes. We have one about staying organized with creators of the Home Edit. And one about being diagnosed with ADHD as an adult. We hope you'll join us. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.